The wind and waves still know his name. I could hardly get through that tonight. That phrase, and I, you know, different songs hit different people in different ways, but that single phrase, every time we sing it, it just, it just gets me. What an incredible encouragement to know that the same wind and waves that were blowing 2,000 years ago in the Galilee and listened to his voice and obeyed when he said, hush, the winds and the waves, they still bow down. They still acknowledge their creator. I'm not trying to get weird and all environmentalist on you. But a reminder that he is still in control. And maybe you just need to hear that tonight. That he is still in control. And the storms may rage. It may seem unnavigable. I don't even know if that's a word. But you can't navigate it. It may seem like you are just spinning and there's no getting out. But the wind and the waves still know His name. He is God. He is the same God of all power and might who created this world. The same God who punched a hole into time and came down in human flesh. The same God who humbled Himself and died on the cross. same God who rose from the dead and stayed around here 40 days to prove it and showed Himself as resurrected. The same God who calls out faith and has been doing it for 2,000 years. And don't you think for a moment that your problems are any greater or any worse than anybody else's have been for 2,000 years. We have always, always struggled. Mankind has always been fearful from one time to the next. We've always had stress. We've always had worry. We've always had doubts. But the wind and the waves still know His name. And He is in control. And He is accomplishing exactly what He determined to accomplish. What He set out to do, He is doing. And that means in your life as well as in the grander scheme of things. That's how deep His love is. Well, tonight I have one goal in mind, and that's to get Paul to Rome. So we're going to try and see him through. Jesus promised He would go. Paul himself appealed to Caesar, which pretty much set it in stone, at least in terms of Roman law. And now after two years at Caesarea, we see the apostle, the ambassador, Paul, on his way, finally. So Acts chapter 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in an Adramitian ship, which was about to set sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. Remember Aristarchus? We've met him before. He joined Paul returning from his third missionary journey, coming back with him after Paul collected all those funds from all the churches to, to take care of and to, and to honor the church in Jerusalem and the struggling Jews and Christians there in Judea. Aristarchus was one who came back with him. And now he joins Paul and Luke on what would be Paul's final journey headed to Rome. And Aristarchus will end up sharing a cell with Paul. Writing from prison there in Rome, Paul calls Aristarchus my fellow prisoner, meaning he was 
either incarcerated ultimately with Paul, or he attended so closely to Paul that he was always there. Always next to Paul, day in and day out, caring for him, looking after him. That's fellowship, man. Whether we go to jail together or we attend to one another in prison, that's fellowship. Now maybe that's not your standard of fellowship. Maybe you're thinking more like potlucks as opposed to prison. But Aristarchus is a faithful brother. Aristarchus, in essence, by his behavior, shows us a brother who will stand with another brother even in incarceration. A brother who stays true. Fellowship. Note this also as they set out, they board an Adramitian or Adramitian ship. And what does that mean? Well, it's from a place called Adramitium. So there you go. That was a seaport village, uh, Adramitium, of Mysia in Asia, Asia Minor. Not that big a deal, but the name is interesting to me. It literally means in the Greek, I shall abide in death. Right, would you board that ship? <laughs> I shall abide in death, Adramitean. That's not a problem for Paul. He'd board that ship. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, he said, for, me, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So, whatever. <laughs> but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And that's the right attitude of the follower of Jesus. It's not a death wish. I've said before, it's not a, a suicidal intention. It's an awareness of the necessity of life here and now, as well as the intimacy of life there and then. Right now it is necessary for us to live on in the name of Jesus. For us to, whatever we do, you may be the one voice that brings just one more person across the next 30 years, one person to Jesus. And to me that's worth living a life. And when we die, we get to go home and be with the Lord. So necessity now, intimacy then, either way, Paul says I'm hard pressed so I'm just going to leave it up to the Lord. If I am to live on now, it's fruitful labor. If I'm to continue, whether I'm going to prison in Rome or getting on this ship that's called, I shall abide in death, doesn't matter to me, doesn't bother me at all. Now, I'm sure the sailors would have had different issues. Superstitions of sailors on the sea to climb aboard that vessel. But what's interesting to me, and I point this out partially because at the beginning of the end, at least of the book of Acts... In chapters 27 and 28, if this was a dramatic novel, it would be the perfect name for this ship. Or at least the perfect name for a vessel about to take Paul into one of the greatest storms of his life. A vessel on which 276 passengers, actually they're going to be on the next ship, but but at least 200, 250 passengers on this ship, they're going to transfer to another one, but they're going to have some rough seas. They're going to have a hard time. And the ultimate crew that Paul sails with, that 276 people, will end up without a hope of life before the journey's over. I shall abide in death. Before this evening's over, you're going to see the entire crew without a hope. Verse 3. 
The next day, we put in at Zidon. Now they're sailing up the coast of Israel from Caesarea, straight on up the coast, you'll land at Zidon. And Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. Paul, there's something about this guy. You know, he infuriated his brothers and sisters, the Jews. And yet here we have a Roman centurion who looks at this prisoner and says, oh, you want to go hang out with your church friends while we're here in port? Go ahead, that's cool. Just be back before we sail. Something about his character, something about his nature that just spoke trustworthy. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Jewish people were so frustrated with Paul is they knew he was trustworthy. They understood him to be a man of integrity and as he's talking about this Jesus, as he's proclaiming this Messiah and this resurrection from the dead, well... They had a hard time taking that because this is a trustworthy guy. He can't be making this stuff up, but we don't want to buy it. And so their frustration led to anger, which led to you know all that we've seen happen with Paul. So the centurion says, yeah, take some time off. We'll see you back at the ship. Verse 4. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. Note that. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. And when we had sailed slowly for a good many days, and with difficulty had arrived off Snidus, how'd you like to live in Snidus? What would the people there be called? Snide? Is that another Snide remark? So they arrived off Snidus since the wind did not permit us to go farther. Note that. The winds were contrary. Now the winds did not permit us to go further. We sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close inshore. It was early winter now. 61 or 62 A.D., Verse 9 says the fast was already over. That's how we know it's early winter. The fast was Yom Kippur. Day of Atonement, which always happens in the month of Tishri, which is at the end of the fall season in Israel, the end of October for us. It was an especially dangerous time to sail those seas. In fact, not a good time to book a Mediterranean cruise. Okay, the winter months. How does Paul know to warn them? How is Paul privy to information that that's not a good time to sail? Any ideas? He's been there, done that. Good answer, Cheryl. He's been there, done that. How many missionary journeys, three that we know of, where he traveled, where he sailed, where he was all over the seas and the ocean, he had been in three shipwrecks, 
He had spent a night and a day in the deep, he tells us, 2 Corinthians 11.25. This is a man of a seaworthy experience. He had his sea legs. His warnings are not so much prophetic as they are practical. He just knows the deal. They're not so much spiritual as they are experiential. He's reading the weather with the eyes of an experienced sailor. And Jesus said in Matthew 16:2, "When it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times?" Discernment runs both ways, gang. Discernment is very much a spiritual thing. In fact, I believe a spiritual gift. But discernment is also just using your noggin. It's reading the signs. It's reading the times. You don't have to be a great spiritual mind to look at the days in which we live and know what Jesus was talking about when He says, don't you know how to read the signs of the times? This whole world knows that we're in a stormy season, perhaps the last. We see this, we understand this. It's not necessarily spiritual, it's just real, it's practical. And that's important for us to note as believers because it's not always spiritual things, though we want to be spiritual, we want to seek spiritual things, we want to think by the Spirit, but sometimes God just says to me, Rick, use your head. You don't have to get all weird about this. Just think it through. And act on what you know to be true, what you know to be right. Paul knows if they go sailing at this time of year, bad news. This was not a spiritual download. The Holy Spirit didn't say, Paul, tell them. He'll have another word for Paul later on in the chapter. He just says, you know, guys, I've been this road before, and it doesn't look good to sail. So he warns of damage and great loss. Luke uses words throughout like difficult, dangerous, contrary. Think about that again back in verse 4. He calls the winds contrary. And in verse 7 says the wind did not permit us. It should be no surprise. And this is spiritual, so pay attention. It should be no surprise to us that they had a hard time getting Paul to Rome. You see, somebody was contrary to the whole idea of Paul getting to Rome. Well, who would that be? The Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air. So if the winds and the waves are rolling, guess who's probably behind it? At least in this situation, there is one who is always contrary to the sound navigation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And man, if Paul gets to Rome, just think about the fallout for years in terms of the demonic realm, what they're going to have to deal with, the encouragement that that would bring if this man gets to Rome? What happened in Rome? Well, at least four of his letters were written there that we read and study and know today. We've got to stop. See, Satan couldn't stop Jesus. He couldn't stop the birth. He couldn't stop the ministry. He couldn't stop... Well, he brought about the crucifixion, but he couldn't stop the resurrection. He couldn't stop the ascension. He couldn't stop the birth of the church. He couldn't stop anything that God had intended to do. But now, he sees Paul headed for Rome. We've got to stop him. And that's why I believe the winds and the waves were contrary, were opposed. 
the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2 verse 2, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, Satan is, you could call him, somewhat of an airhead. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 tells us the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And by the way, there's another verse that completely undermines preterism. If you don't know what preterism is, look it up. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And the preterist would say, well, no, we're in that age. We're in the Revelation chapter 20. We're in a kind of a millennial kingdom right now. Well, in the millennial kingdom, Satan is bound and imprisoned. And if the whole world at this time lies underneath the power of the evil one, Satan is not bound, is not imprisoned. Therefore, this is not the millennial kingdom, allegorically or otherwise. But what's interesting is that Paul uses this word enantios, or enantios, which means to stand against, it means antagonistic, it means hostile, opposed, contrary. That's the word contrary there in verse 4. Note that, enantios. Why is that important? Because he uses the same word to describe Satan. He'll use the same word in Titus chapter 2, verse 7, where he says the following, In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent, the enantios, the contrary one, will be put to shame and have nothing bad to say about us. We talked about righteousness on Sunday kind of a baseball bat teaching, or at least so I'm told. Hammering home the reality that God has called His people to be righteous in an extremely unrighteous age. And we don't have time to play games with that, folks. And I'm not meaning to be hard-skulled and, and hard about these things. Oh, I'm not to be righteous. You know, righteousness is joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. It's part of the deal. But we are called to be righteous. Why? Well, Paul just said, show yourself an example of good deeds. Why? So that the Antios, the, the contrary one, will be put to shame. Live your life in such a way that Satan can't tag you. Can't put something on you. Don't hand him freebies. I have done that far too many times in my life. I've made it easy for Satan to undermine my gospel calling. My bad. My fault. Don't give him anything. And you might say, well, oppositional. Okay, the word means he's oppositional. And oppositional behavior, argumentative behavior, this is the behavior of the evil one. Antagonistic behavior is not befitting of a follower of Jesus Christ. Setting yourself against a brother or a sister, this is synonymous with Satan. To be contrary. You might say, well, shouldn't we stand opposed to evil? Shouldn't we be contrary to all the evil at work in the world? Well, of course we should but not with a contrary attitude. There's a way that we can stand against evil without being argumentative. And I've said before, don't get into arguments with non-believers. You will do no good. What happens is the flesh starts to well up, and I want to win. 
so I'm going to do whatever it takes. Even if it means shaming them and making them look stupid eventually, I'm going to win this argument. Brothers and sisters, we are not here to win arguments. We are here to win souls. People. So being argumentative, being contrary, that is the stuff of the enemy. So how are we to be, how are we to stand against or be opposed to evil? Our best fight against evil is to do what's right. Our best stand against the lies is to speak the truth. We oppose hatred by showing love. We live as Jesus would have us live, as Jesus Himself lived. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul said, which was in Christ Jesus. And the more we behave like Jesus, the more we live like Jesus, and the more we act like Jesus, the more power and authority we're going to have over the enemy. He'll have nothing on us. He's the contrary one. You are not. You're just walking in the Lord. We don't get our backs up. In fact... Are you ready for this? In the face of the enemy, we let our guard down. We don't protect our pride. We stand wide open and we say to the enemy, take your best shot. Fire off the worst that you have. And if I'm seen as some sinner man in the face of all my brothers and sisters here, so be it. Then I can confess and move on. Jesus completely let His guard down. They could not have crucified Him otherwise. And the attitude of the follower of Jesus is just that. Not to be contrary. And I'm not preaching to the choir. I am the choir. I'm preaching to me. And this really hit me between the eyes this week how many times over the years I have been the contrary Christian. I've been the antagonistic believer. I've been the one who fights. Well, we fight the good fight by love and humility and gentleness and kindness, which is a completely different mentality. And I fear not one that we encourage in the church. It's not one that I've often encouraged. Take a stand. Know the Word. Fight back. No, no. Take a stand. Know the Word. Love people in the name of Jesus. Point them to Jesus. And let your guard down, trusting the Lord for the outcome. It's not easy to do, but don't forget the one who walked directly through contrary seas. Matthew 14.24, the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Same word. And in Tios. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea, which means he was walking right through these contrary waves. Not a problem for Jesus. He had this marvelous ability to peacefully walk through opposition. Remember in Nazareth? At the very start of his ministry, when he proclaimed himself to be the answer to Isaiah's prophecies. And today this has been fulfilled in me, he says, and they lost it. And they drove him out to the very edge, the cliff of Nazareth. They were going to throw him off the precipice. And the Bible tells us that Jesus passed right through their midst. It doesn't tell us that he became a phantom and went and ended up somewhere else. He just passed through their midst peacefully, calmly. 
He didn't fight back. He didn't shout him down. He didn't argue with him. He just walked out. Luke 4.30, you can read about that. Remember when His voice, another time on the Galilee, silenced the sea. He just said three words. Hush, be still. Hush. And the sea was calm. The problem is, gang, that people don't stop to listen when the Lord speaks. They don't give heed to the hush. How many times in my life has He said, Rick, hush. When we sing, let go my soul and trust in Him. I I always think this, i got to let go of my soul. I gotta stop guarding my soul. I gotta stop all this spinning around in my soul. I gotta let that go and just trust in Him. Remember what Paul says that the peace which passes, surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds, your soul in Christ Jesus. Let it go, man. You're in stormy places, you're in stressed out places. Let go, my soul. Trust in Him. Listen to Him. If the seas are swelling, listen to Him. He's the one who says, hush. But the centurion did not listen. In fact, he paid attention to the wrong voices. He listened to the pilot, the captain, and the majority. Oh, what did the majority want? They wanted to go to Phoenix for the winter. No? Maybe watch the Cardinals lose. <laughs> Was that a great game on Sunday or what? I just have to say that. That was awesome. Verse 14. But before very long there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Eurachilo. <laughs> the Eurachilo or the Eurachlodon in the Greek, which means a raging tempest. There's a Greek word for a, a storm out of control. So now they've gone from bad to worse. In verse 15. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way and let ourselves be driven along. Wow, that's telling. When we get into the storms of life, that's what happens when we take our eyes off Jesus. When we stop listening, we end up driven. Remember that Jesus is never one who drives. He leads. He never pushes you out ahead of Himself. He goes first. When he says, take up your cross, he doesn't say, take up your cross and get out there. I'll be behind you. Take up your cross and follow me. Drivenness is another non-characteristic of followers of Jesus. We are not driven, we are led. But they were being driven by this wind. Verse 16, running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. The ship's boat was a skiff. And oftentimes boats in the Mediterranean in those days, they would, they would drag along, they would trail along behind them a, a skiff towed there to be used to, you know, if they had to harbor outside of land, then they could row into land. They would just drag it behind them. Well, this wind and waves and the storm is so bad, the skiff is out of control. And so they're trying to pull this little, little thing in. And after they hoisted it up, verse 17, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship. And fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. Now you might think, wait, if they let down the anchor, how can they be driven along? 
The word sea anchor here is talking literally about gear. It could mean sails, it could mean ropes, it could also be applied to ballast. So what they let down was something on either side of the boat. You've seen this, some boats will have wings, so to speak, that, that go out and they help kind of balance the ship when, when the waves are big. So that's what they let down there, some kind of ballast. They've pulled the skiff in up onto the deck. They've wrapped the boat as they're crashing along with cables to hold the boat together. This is a wild, out-of-control storm. And verse 18 says, The next day as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, note this, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. I read that and I shuddered. Because spiritually, that is the dangerous, the the, the darkest place you could be. When all hope of being saved is abandoned. Some people get there. I've called it in the past the point of no return. Not because God would not reach out to save, but because a person gets so swallowed up by their sin, they refuse to repent and never will. When all hope of being saved is abandoned, maybe you've seen it in people. When is it that people abandon hope? Well, as seen here, but also spiritually, people abandon hope when their own arms are no longer strong enough to bear the load. When everything you've tried doesn't work. You've pulled in the skiff. You've wrapped the boat in cables. You've put out the ballast. You're trying all you can think of. You've brought down the sails. You're allowing the wind just to drive you along, but it's not getting better. It's just getting worse. To the point that you give up all hope because everything you can do is not enough. My ability, my craft, it's just not seaworthy. And when people get in that place and the storm hits, hope is lost. People make fun of Christianity and say it's just a crutch. I say it's a whole lot bigger than a crutch. Christianity, following Jesus, that's the very strength in my legs. That's the encouragement of my heart. Without it, I would be lost. I would be taken away. Our hope of being saved is not in ourselves, never has been in ourselves. And we have to get to that point of understanding before hope can begin to be restored. It truly is not until we come to, as we've said so many times, the end of ourselves. Listen to this. In Romans chapter 5, the next book over, and you don't need to turn there, you can. We'll be there in a couple or three weeks probably. But Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by all your hard work, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When faith comes, peace is always there. One of the ways you know you have faith in Jesus is peace accompanies faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope 
of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Hope emerges in hardship when you have faith in Jesus. When you don't have faith in Jesus, hardship just stresses you out more. Just drives your life. But where there's faith in Jesus, where there's trust in the Lord, hope emerges in hardship, in persecution, in tribulation. Perseverance yields proven character, yields hope. Why at that point does hope begin to emerge? Because that's when I experience God making headway in my life. Are you with me on this? When hardships hit and I persevere and my character is more than it was the last time I went through a storm, hope emerges because I start to realize something. You know what it is? It's Christ in me. He, he actually is making me more like Him. I actually am weathering this storm better than last time, and the only difference is Christ in me. And that is so encouraging, and hope emerges because I begin to see, think about this, what we talked about Sunday, about righteousness again, I begin to see the fruit of righteousness in Christ in me. I begin to respond, to react righteously where before I would not have. And it's such a cool dynamic because as I react with righteousness, it makes me more hopeful. I remember Chuck Smith years ago talking about a guy who came up to him and said, Chuck, Pastor Chuck, i got to tell you this. I had this horrible problem cussing. I cussed for years. I came to Christ and my biggest fear in being in the church was that I was going to like cuss in the foyer. You know what? I realized something the other day. I don't cuss anymore. My language is cleaned up and I didn't even try. I just believed in Jesus. See, that's it. That's proven character. Perseverance begets proven character which brings hope. And I start to go, wow, there really is something to following Jesus. I really am more like Him than I was. I got a long way to go, but today's a good day because today's trial ended up with me praising the Lord instead of wallowing in hopelessness. Peter says it this way. He says, The proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. He says, At the revelation of Jesus Christ, which means maybe not today. Your perseverance may not show something today other than you are persevering. But at the revelation of Jesus Christ, there's going to be praise and glory and honor galore. It's all going to be to Him. As we stand around looking at each other saying, We're here. We're actually here. You're here. (laughs) I know someone's going to say that to me. Rick, you made it? Wow, God is a God of grace. (laughs) They were hopeless on the sea. They thought it was over. 
Luke writes that it was gradually abandoned. So as one day gave into another day, gave into another day of storm upon storm upon storm, they finally gave up one man after another. I would say they gave up to the last three men. Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus. And everyone else. They were done. Verse 21, When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. (laughs) I told you so. You know, honestly, I think if Paul had said this when the storm first hit, it would have sounded like that. I told you so. But he waited. He waited for a long time. The crew is now hopeless. The crew is hungry when he finally says this to them. When he finally expresses this to them. Why? Because hunger is an effective listening tool. If he had said it when the storm first hit, nobody would have been listening. They would have been like, shut up, Paul. Grab an oar, man. Make yourself useful. But now, when hopelessness had set in, they're hungry. And Paul says, you should have listened. And why does he say that? He's setting up something else. He's setting up a feeding to the hunger. Often the Lord will wait until hunger sets in in our lives before He calls us to the table. He waits until we're really struggling. And then He goes, okay, come on. Let's talk about this. Keep your finger here and and go over to the book of Amos. Go back left a few books into the Minor Prophets to Amos. This kind of put a different spin on on a passage we've read before and I I thought through. Amos chapter 8. It's right before Obadiah if you're having trouble finding it. Amos chapter 8. Verse 11. I'm going to go ahead and start reading, but find it, because you've got to see something here. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Now, I've used this passage. I've talked about we're experiencing a famine of the Word in the world today. People not hungry for the Word of God, actually starving for the Word of God, but not not even realizing that's what they're starving for. A, A hunger for the Word, but not able to find the Word, not able to get to the Word. And you might say, well, that seems a little harsh. Because God proclaims this. I will send a famine on the land. I will send, he says. This is in his control. I'm going to send a famine for the Word. And he does it after people stop eating the Word. I believe that's what's happened in our country. That for long seasons now, the vast majority of people have not been feeding on the Word of God, so the Lord is slowly turning this into a famine. And the day will come in this country as well as all around the globe when people will starve for the Word and realize they need more than they could possibly ever have in this life and begin looking for it and they will not find it. God's going to remove it. A famine for the Word. Why would He do that? Because hunger is an effective listening tool. 
Because He will use whatever He has to use to get people to the place where they will actually start eating again. A famine for the Word. But note this. Go over to the end of Amos chapter 9, verse 13. God doesn't leave it there, that famine for the Word. No, He says, Behold, days are coming declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. You may, the Bible may say captivity. It's, it's fortune. I will restore you from captivity. I will restore your fortunes. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land. They will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord. That's a completely different situation now, isn't it? I'm going to bring a famine for the Word, he says. Why? So that ultimately I can bless with an abundance, overflowing, when the people are once again hungry for it. And that's the big picture. That's the hope that does not disappoint. Even in hopelessness, that's the promise of a hunger fed. And keep that in mind. Go on back now to Acts 27. So he waits. They've gone a long time without food. He says, I told you this would happen. And then in verse 22, he says, Now I urge you to keep up your courage. See, he waited because they need to listen. I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God. I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on a certain island. Now Paul hears from God, directly from an angel of the Lord, who shows up, gives Paul this message. Now he turns and he shares the message, and this hopeful or hopeless, hungry crew hear him. Because they're in a position where they have no other hope. Kind of like Peter saying, Lord, to whom else can we go? We got no other alternative here, but one man, this prisoner Paul, telling us, an angel appeared to him and said, all is well. It's going to be okay. You got to run aground, but you're going to be fine. And he passes on this message. Keep up your courage. What is this message based on? The entirety of it is Paul's three words in the middle of it. I believe God. I believe God. Keep up your courage, men. Based on what? I believe God. The centurion had believed the pilot. That didn't work out so well. The men now believed they were hopelessly lost. Paul believed God. Do you? In the tempest? Do you believe? I didn't say, do you believe in God? A lot of times we believe in God. We're just not always taking Him at His word. I believe in Him, but I don't believe Him that He's going to get me out of this mess. Paul says, I believe God. 
I take him at his word. He told me, therefore, it must happen. And this is becoming increasingly important in this age. For us to be a people who don't just believe in God, but believe God. But trust Him for all things. Whatever the press proclaims, whatever the scholars or the scientists might say, I believe God. Whatever the experts express or the politicians pronounce, I believe God. Man, all you got to do is listen to any of the politicians in this election cycle. Compare what they're saying now to what they said a year ago, and I guarantee almost every one of them is different. I believe God. Because His Word is unchanging. His Word is constant. It is secure. God is not a man that He should lie, is He? When He says it, that's the deal. Will you keep believing God even in the storm? Now, Rome was the pinnacle where they're headed, the pinnacle of education and thought. That's where all the minds were. The greatest hodgepodge of humanity the world had ever seen. The brightest minds of Greece and Persia and Europe and Africa and Asia all rolled into one vast empire. This was the cutting edge nation of the world in the first century. And by the way, they were doing things that we still haven't figured out how to do. But Paul said this, about them when he wrote to the church at Rome Romans chapter 1 verse 22 professing to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Listen, culture is contrary, hostile to God because the adversary is. Culture is just going the same way of the adversary, contrary to God. Contrary to the positions of God. Contrary to the Word of God. Contrary to the righteousness of God. Which is why we in this culture now must believe God over culture. And I'll tell you the truth, it breaks my heart when a Christian takes the word of science over the word of God. When a Christian looks to science to subvert the gospel, who, who says, well, I believe some of the Bible, but science says these other things, and I really go that way. Really? Then you don't believe God. Because he's the one who said it. And Rick, you're sounding like a fundamentalist again. So I am. The fundamentals of truth. Believe in God. Don't believe in me. I've told you that many times. Don't take my word for stuff. Don't don't walk out of here and say, well, Rick said this, but I don't think so. That's fine. Because I could be wrong. But if God said it, you better be on your toes. Believe in God. Verse 27. Paul says we must run aground on a certain island. By the way, you might want to circle certain. That's interesting. I'll tell you why in a minute. But when the 14th night came, 
As we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took some soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And a little farther on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, well, that's what Paul said was going to happen, right? We must run aground. Fearing that this is going to happen, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. And the word wish there, I wish had been translated differently. Because the word is prayed. They prayed for daybreak. Now I don't know to whom all these guys were praying, but I have a notion that at least a handful were now praying to the God of Paul. They prayed for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat, that is that skiff, they've let it down now into the sea on pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow. Paul sees this. He says to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. He knows they're trying to escape. Verse 32, then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat, that is of the skiff, and let it fall away. And I love this. It is proof of belief. Paul says, I believe God. That means we're going to do it God's way, not my way, not your way, and not these men's way. We're going to do it God's way. Cut loose the escape pod. God made it clear. Stay in the boat. You're going to run aground, but you will not lose a single life. Stay in the boat. These men are trying to get out of the boat and make their escape. The proof of belief in my life, in your life, is seen when we cut loose the escape pod. When we get rid of our contingency plans. Just in, just in case Jesus doesn't come. Just in case Jesus doesn't do what He said He'd do. Listen, don't jump ship when the winds and the waves get big. Stay in the boat. The waves and the winds still know His name. He still is the one in authority. But I wonder how many of us have a little skiff trailing on behind the boat that we can jump into when we need to. A place where we can bail out. Just in case. People do it with marriage. It's called a prenup. You know what's really sad is that we actually have a legal term for a document that assumes divorce. That's what a prenup is. Just in case, it's a a little skiff trailing on behind the boat. The prenuptial agreement. Just in case this marriage doesn't work out, we have a way out to protect ourselves. How about going into the marriage and saying, no way out. We're going to stand. We're going to stick. I'm staying in. People do it in relationships. It is so junior high, but relationships get rocky and we bail out. People do it with church. When a fellowship no longer meets my needs or offends me, I'm off somewhere else. I'm looking over at my wife and I'm saying, come on, dinghy, let's get out of here. No offense, sure. (laughs) I take the skiff and escape. Now, listen. There are instances where escape is merited, provided by the Lord. There are times when you should get out, when you should escape. In a church situation, if heresy is being taught, get out. 
if immorality is apparent among church leaders, call it out. And if they will not change, get out. That's a time when escape is merited. In a marriage, if there is marital unfaithfulness in terms of specifically adultery, and that's one that people like to water down, well, he was unfaithful because he came home late every night. That's not what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about sexual immorality being the one caveat for divorce for the the person in a marriage where their sexual immorality can step out of the marriage. Can do it. But even in that situation, gang, I think the Lord would advise us to cut the ropes and remove the contingency plans and stay on board. If at all possible. Why... Because if this gift is available, I will eventually use it. If it's there, at some point, I will avail myself of the escape. There are two specific escapes that the Lord promises or provides for us. And the first one is very simply escape from temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. There is a time to pull a Joseph. You know, when Potiphar's wife was coming on to him, trying to get him to sleep with her, and... He flees the scene. He gets out of there. As Paul would later write, flee sexual immorality. Well, Joseph did, but she grabbed hold of his cloak and kept it behind. He ends up in prison for it. But he did the right thing. He fled. He escaped. Can you imagine how the Scriptures would read in Genesis if Joseph had stayed and said, oh well, you know, she is my master's wife. Let's just keep her happy and maybe that will keep her quiet. Scripture would be a very different thing. Joseph would no longer be a picture of Jesus as he was in the Hebrew Scriptures. So in that situation, a way of escape. When you're being tempted, too wrong, too evil, too sin, God provides that. There is an escape route. There is a skiff that you can hop onto and sail away. Take it if temptation's at issue. The only other thing I could find in Scripture where God provides an escape from is tribulation. The tribulation. Capital T. Not tribulations, but the tribulation. Jesus says, Luke 21, 36, Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Persevere. God will give you the escape at the right time. God's going to call out the church at the right time. In the meantime, flee from sin, but stay put in stormy seas. Pray for strength. Until Jesus gets you out. And He will. Well, verse 33. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take food. Saying, Today is the 14th day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food. For this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Which would have been good news for me if I had been on that boat. (laughs) 
having said this, he took bread, he gave thanks to God in the presence of all. Paul's one of these guys who prayed in restaurants. You know them, those spiritual people. He prayed and gave thanks to God in the presence of all. He broke and he began to eat. All of them were encouraged. And they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now this is just amazing to me. Because we saw earlier that they were hungry. 14 days earlier, they were hungry. 14 days. I assumed when I first got to that point in the passage, reading that verse, oh wow, you know, in the storm and everything, they just lost it all. (laughs) They had plenty of food on board. But when people are driven, when they're stressed out, when they're worried, when they're holding on for dear life, oftentimes that's when eating is the last thing on their minds. Too stressed to eat. They had the bread. Right there, on board. It wasn't a lack of sustenance, it was the abundance of stress. The food was there. And note this, people can be absolutely starving for the Word of God and still refuse to come and get it. You all chose to come tonight and be in the Word. People have all kinds of things going on, so I'm not sitting in judgment of the empty chairs tonight. But I do point out that the food is here. The food is on board. All we have to do is take it. All we have to do is come and get it. But Jesus said, Matthew 13, 22, the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Man, what a picture. On this boat, the storms are blowing, things are out of control, it's wild, and they're not eating. Man, you'd think the one thing they would need to get through this storm is sustenance. But no one's eating. Until Paul finally says, have some food. Feed on the Word. It's right here. It's available. we got extra Bibles. People can take all they want. Be in the Word. Feed on the Word. The Bible still, it's amazing, remains the world's number one bestseller. There's an estimate, and I'm not even sure how they estimate this, but that over 6 billion copies of Scripture has been printed. 6 billion. That's since Gutenberg got, it, got the ball rolling in 1455. 6 billion. So why is the world so hungry? Why is the world so famished? Why is the world starving? Why are Christians ever hungry? That I fail to understand when the storehouse of the Word of God is full. But notice the example of Paul. Look again at verse 35. Having said this, he took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of all, broke it, and began to eat. He was first in line. Food is here. Let's eat it. Let's take it. He was thankful for it. Jeremiah 15, 16. Lesson my argument verse because he says it's his verse and I say it's my verse. Your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. This is good food. Thank God for it and eat it in the presence of all. Put it on your desk at work. Well, I, I could get in trouble for that. 
You think they're going to send you to prison? Have it out on the counter at home. Keep it at your, on your nightstand. Put it in the car. And if you leave your Bible, if you're one of these forgetful people and you're always leaving your Bible somewhere, just keep buying new ones. And then every time you're in one of those different places, well, your other Bible will still be there. Feast on the Word so that others will also be encouraged to feed on the Word and be sustained. Verse 39. Well, when day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach. So they couldn't tell what island this was they saw. They just saw one there. And so they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. See, now these driven men are driving themselves. Paul said, you're going to run aground. In fact, when I read the words of Paul given by the angel, what he said was pretty much just kick back, guys. God will take care of it. You're going to crash ashore and you'll all be fine. So to me, that means settle back and let God take the helm. But of course, these non-believers couldn't do that, and so they determined, we're going to drive the ship aground. Well, that's brilliant. Verse 40, casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast, remaining immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. Now pause right here, I cannot prove this, but I don't think that's where God wanted them to land. I think had they left it in the hands of the Lord, they would have gone right up onto the sandy beach. He would have steered the vessel, because that's again what he said, and I believe God. But because they determined to do it their way, they now go into the rocks and the ship starts to break apart. Beautiful. Verse 42, the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they were all brought safely to land. See, God kept His word even though they tried to do it their own way. Because even when we're faithless, He remains faithful for He cannot deny Himself. 276 souls came through this storm. Including Paul, Aristarchus, and Luke. Everyone was spared, but you need to note this, the followers of Jesus, though they were spared at the end, they were not spared from the very same storm. Just because you follow Jesus does not mean your life will be storm-free. You're still going to go through the storms. Sometimes you're going to go through the storms because you follow Jesus. Paul wouldn't have been in this storm if he wasn't following Jesus. You know, he'd be back in Damascus picking on Jews. Jesus said, John 16.33, In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Not the tribulation, but now we're two little t's. Tribulation. You're going to have tribulation. It's a promise. By Jesus speaking that, He blew away the whole concept of the prosperity gospel. You know, that all you got to do is name it and claim it. Receive it and it's yours. 
And Jesus says, yeah, but you're going to have tribulations. Don't worry about it. I got you covered. I'm going to get you through the storm. But you're going to go into the storms. You're going to have these problems. The beautiful thing is at the end of all this, while soldiers and sailors and prisoners alike came swimming and floating and sputtering up to shore, the ministry of Paul is not all washed up. In fact, right on schedule, they land on the exact beach God had prepared for them. It's an island. Verse 1 of chapter 28 says, when they brought, they have been brought safely through, we found that the island was called Malta. I'd like you to make a, a note of this. We're going to talk about it more on Sunday morning. But Malta is actually Melita. Melita. And I'll explain why on Sunday. But think about this. The Lord had not crash landed this vessel on this tiny little island in the Adriatic Sea for no reason whatsoever. Had he not crashed this vessel here, then all of the native inhabitants of this island would have missed the gospel altogether. Verse 1, they have been brought safely through. We found out the island was called Melita. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid on the fire, laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. And his sakes. Out of the storm and into the snake pit. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began to say to one another, Undoubtedly this man is a murderer, for though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they waited a long time, I can just see it, all the inhabitants standing around Paul. <laughs> just watching. He's going to go down. Oh, he's, no, he's, he's okay. He's all right. When they saw that this had not happened, nothing unusual happened to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. I love that. He was a murderer. Well, now he's a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius. <laughs> Winnie the Publius. I told my kids tonight that Anna Maria and Naomi had never heard that the name of the Russian president was Vladimir Putin. They thought that was hilarious. And then I told them about Putin on the Ritz and they thought that was even funnier. Man named Publius who welcomed and entertained us courteously for three days and it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery and Paul went in to see him and after he had prayed he laid his hands on him and healed him. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. I love it. Paul's in full-blown ministry mode. The prisoner is now a physician and he's healing people right and left by the power of the Spirit. They also honored us, verse 10, with many marks of respect. And when we were getting setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. And again, we're going to cover this on Sunday. There's so much just in these ten verses that's fascinating. But they would have missed it. Had not the Lord driven that boat to this island, 
This island would not have known the glory of the Lord, would not have seen the healing of the Lord, would not have known the ministry of Paul. Had it been smooth sailing for Paul, he would have cruised right on by. My question to you tonight is, are you willing to face contrary seas if it means salvation will come to the natives? Are you willing to go through tribulation and trials and and sorrow and hardship and difficulty in your life, but in the name of Christ, continue to stand and believe God? Knowing that perhaps someone's going to get saved. Because I'm in this storm. Is it worth it? Is, is your hardship worth the salvation of even one person? So I would say yes. I would say even up to my very death, it is worth the salvation of another person. If that's what it takes, if my difficulty, if my trials, if everything going wrong in my life would bring one person to the Lord Jesus for all eternity, bring on the storm, Lord. That's the value of a single human life. And that's the value of a human life to the Lord. Paul gets it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, he writes to young Pastor Tim, he says, suffer hardship with me. As a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for whom I suffer hardship. Even to imprisonment as a criminal... But, Paul says, the Word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. So God sent Paul. He is sending Paul to imprisonment in the last couple of years of his life, and ultimately we believe death. Something he went on to Spain. I think he was martyred at Rome, but... Nonetheless, he would spend this time in prison for the sake of the gospel. And Paul's prison letters, well, they've changed my life. They have brought salvation to countless numbers of people across the centuries. Paul says, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation in Christ Jesus. Okay, quickly, let's get on to Rome. Verse 11, at the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and when and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. That is, there on the bow had Castor and Pollux, the twin brothers, that is, the sons of Zeus. So these are carved on the front end of this ship. After we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, watched a little basketball. Verse 13, from there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. And there we found some brethren, and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and I have this underlined in my Bible, thus we came to Rome. Thus we came to Rome. Just as Jesus promised, He prophesied as such, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Thus they came to Rome. And verse 15, The brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. 
and it's 62 AD. Thus we came to Rome. I want to end just with this thought. There in Rome, even in Rome, the gospel was far-reaching. When you look at where the brethren came from to see Paul, Paul is centralized, we think, in Rome. And they came from the Appii Forum to Rome, which was 43 miles. They came from the three taverns, or what's translated here, the uh, three inns, the three inns, the three taverns. From this location is known, archaeologically, 33 miles. One church. That's so awesome. And when they heard Paul was there, they all came to the meeting. They all came to church. They all showed up because the apostle was there. They had received his letter to the Romans over a decade prior. That he had written from Corinth. The letter to the Romans that we're about to read. And they, they read that he promised he was going to get to them. He wanted to see them. He hoped to derive some benefit from being with them to bestow some spiritual gift on them. And the Lord Jesus confirmed this would all come together. Just a couple of three years earlier in Antonio's fortress in Jerusalem, he had said, Acts 23.11, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Thus we came to Rome. See, I believe God. He says it's going to happen. And it happens. And no storms, and no snakes, and no contrary work of Satan himself can drive the servant of God off the Lord's determined course. Father, we pray that you will help us stay the course. That you will cause us to be a people of perseverance in these last days. That we can find assurance believing in You, Lord, and taking You at Your Word. You say it, it happens. May we, like Paul, have that that same level of assurance. See, Paul knew he was going to go to Rome. There was no question, no doubt. We know we're going to be raptured. There is no question, no doubt. We know the day is coming. You're going to call and we're going to go. No question, no doubt. Father, what we need help with is to let go our souls and trust in You. We know You're going to take us from the big storm. Would You give us faith to see us through the little ones? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.